Lord to do tonight. <clears throat> you guys excited to be here tonight? Everyone ready to go? Um, you didn't know. You didn't know that of all nights you could be here. You uh, showed up on the one night where I am doing a massive experiment, so you will all be a part of it. So you should be building in anticipation as we, or in this case, me, speak. How many of you guys are parents here? Any parents, right? Okay, some of you are still un- unsure of that. Um, uh, if I had a journal and I could write down all the things my kids have said uh, through their entirety of uh, sharing and speaking, I would have a lot to say. It's one of those things that you always think about. Like, man, if I would just like write down everything, all the, the darndest things that they said, it would be great. And last night, uh, we were all sitting uh, on our bed, and I was teaching my children about persecution. Uh, I know that sounds like a lighthearted topic to discuss with your kids, but we were reading uh, in the Scripture, and all of a sudden... Uh, got to a place in the text where someone had died because of their faith, and, and uh, so I started to, to teach persecution to my kids, and uh, my oldest is five, almost six, Avery, and I could tell right away that Avery was getting very, very curious. The boys were already climbing on my back and unaware of uh, everything in, re- in reality at this point, but, but Avery was, she was gripped and thralled. I mean, I, um, so she started asking questions. Um, she, like, her first question was like, so, so daddy, you're telling me that people died because they believe in Jesus? Uh, yes, honey, that, that's exactly what I'm saying. In fact, uh, honey, like all the disciples that we learn about, 10 of 11 of those, the original followers of Jesus, uh, 10 of 11 were killed because of their faith. And then she asked, how did they die? Well, it was an attack on their toe, Avery, I'll tell you that. You know, like um, these men were, were killed, Avery. It was brutal. And she pounds me with questions after question after question. And then the last question was this, and have you ever had a moment with your kids? And if you don't have kids, then you don't get this, but maybe you'll at least perceive it, uh, where your heart is just so warmed by where their heart's at. She looks at me after all these questions. I mean, she's going after me, and she says, Daddy, why don't the people who are living in countries right now where their life's at risk or something to that effect is what she said. She said, why don't they move here to America? And... And it was this amazing moment where I got to look at her and say, uh, no, no, honey, uh, they're, right where they, they're right where they need to be. And it's so tough, because like, in her mind, she's thinking like, well, but it's safe here. I don't know when you remember being taught that the gospel isn't safe, that there's nothing in the Bible that guarantees your safety. I don't know, and maybe you, you've uh, been learning it in the scriptures for like 30 years, and maybe this is the first moment that you've ever heard that, Right? But there was this profound moment for my little five-year-old girl, who I pray God will just do a mighty work in her heart, where she understood in that moment, I guarantee that the gospel and following Christ didn't mean roses all the time in terms of on this earth. Are we together? It was this amazing moment. And I like, I like watched her, and I was like, and she, you know, she didn't say a word, and she kind of closed her eyes, and the boys are climbing on her back. The kids say the funniest things, though, because 30 seconds later, after she had pondered this, she, like, starts looking at us. She's like, you know what? I think Maddox is going to play basketball and Dawson's going to play football because he's more aggressive. Because at that moment, my middle son was, like, pulling my ear off my head as I'm teaching persecution. You know, the kids are hilarious. Um, what, what I appreciated most about Avery's persistence is her lack of laziness and desire to know more. And I fear, um, and maybe more than fear, maybe reality, that we are incredibly, extremely lazy when it comes to God's Word. I fear that when we uh, open God's Word 
um, we look at it as a mere a book that's filled with fables and fairy tales that are designed, created, written to when we're having a bad day, they pick us up. That's what I think we think the Bible is all about, really. And uh, it's much more than that, much, much more than that. But I think we're often too lazy to find out the much more. And so tonight we're going to do something incredibly different, incredibly different. I'm so excited. I hope you'll journey with me through this. Because of our laziness, my heart and desire tonight is to pastor you and shepherd you in a completely different way. Um, I'm going to walk us all through tonight in the book of James, which we've been studying, the heart of studying. We're going to study this passage together, all of us. It's going to be interactive. We're going to walk through the passage. I'm going to show you resources on the screen. We are going to get in the heart of studying. And so for those of you who are here and you don't believe in God and you've never studied the Bible before, it will at least be interesting because you'll get to see what Christians are doing with the Bible, right? And, and, and if you're here and you're just starting to follow Christ, it will be a huge night for you because I know one of the questions in your mind is how do I begin in this thing? Like, like where do I start? What, you know, like I like the words the, but all the rest seems somewhat confusing, right? For you, it will be incredibly hopeful, I pray. And for those that are complacent, that find themselves a longtime Christian or a Christian that um, has just been riddled with complacency, I pray tonight God, God awakens you right now. I pray it happens. I believe it can, okay? So here's what we've done to help. Uh, we have uh, put pens and little pieces of paper with the text on it uh, in front of you, in the little like pouch in, in front of your chair. If you're sitting in, in a row that doesn't have one, there's one under your seat. So there should be a pen in there and a piece of paper. I know it's small for some of you that have spectacles. I do apologize about that. We'll print the extend, expanded version next week. Um, get out that pen. Get out that piece of paper. Get out your Bible. And uh, we're going to go to work tonight. Are, are, is that cool with you guys? All right. We're going to go to work. We're going to see what happens here. And I'm going to bring you into uh, not just how I study, but how I believe some of the best practices are in uh, studying in general. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to ask God to do a mighty work, and we're going to see what happens, all right? So Lord, um, I ask right now that you will open our hearts uh, to see your scripture not as a leather-bound, non-living book, but as living and active as sharper than any two-edged sword, as something that can cut us to the core and reveal all truth. I pray tonight that we rest in that, in your holy and awesome name. Amen. So we're looking at James chapter 5. Now, the reason we're doing this tonight is because this is a very strange passage. And when you, if you read the Bible, when you come in your personal study to strange passages... I would imagine you're like the other 90% of believers who come to strange passages, pass it over quickly, and chalk it up to strange. I'm not sure that has anything for me. The problem with that kind of mindset and mentality is this is called God's Word. I know you may think that just the red letters are, if you have a red letter Bible, just the words of Jesus are significant. I actually believe, and many of us here believe that every word is God-inspired, written, and is called God's Word for a reason. Every single piece of it, right? So if you just like the red letters or the stories that make you feel good, if you don't like reading about the God of the Old Testament or the Holy Spirit because those things confuse you or make you uncomfortable, then you have an issue with God's Word. Are we together? Okay? So the reason we're doing... Are we together? Right? 
So, so the reason we're doing this tonight is because it's a strange passage that typically when you come to in your personal study, you're like, I don't think so, right? Like, go back to Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That one's good. I know all what that means. So let's read this all the way through from verses uh, 1 through 6 of chapter 5, and then we'll start breaking it down. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl. Have you seen that in the Bible recently? For the miseries that are coming upon you. Starting uplifting, verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Okay? Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Okay? You have laid up treasure in these last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. And finally, in verse 6, you have condemned. You have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. I would imagine, come to your personal study in James. Many of you have studied it before. Very practical book. Honestly, isn't this the forgotten passage of James? Do you find this passage on a bumper sticker? Right? Have you seen this on a, t- on a t-shirt somewhere? Like, no. Like, faith of that works and all these other themes that we've studied in James, that's what you've found. Okay? Now, anytime I'm studying God's Word, one of the first things I do in my study to prepare my heart is I just begin by, by playing worship music, right? And I'm not going to, like, cue the music right now and make it a little bit interesting here, right? But what I want to do is I want to create this mentality and have this heart that I don't open my Bible. Okay, study, done. And now I pray. Bow the head, fold the knee, pray, done. And now I fast. And now, like all that we're doing is responding to God's initiation of us. And the moment you begin to segment your study and your prayer and your obedience, you begin to compartmentalize something that was never meant to be compartmentalized. It was supposed to always engulf our lives, right? So if you read the Bible and act like you're some scholar and theologian who that's your only task is to read it for the head knowledge of yourself, you are dearly mistaken. So in my study, even to preach this passage tonight, all I did is I just read it over and over and over with worship music playing, uh, playing in the background as God began to soften my heart towards the text. And then always, once I feel like my heart is softened, I begin to journey through it. Now, let me step and pause right now. I know many of you believe and read a chapter a day keeps the devil away. I know many of you live by that philosophy, okay? Okay. I'm not condemning read the Bible in a year plans. I'm not doing that. You're like, I, ch- I checked mine off today. I'm not, listen. All I'm saying is, if you want to get a great survey of the Bible, that's a great method, okay? Read through chapter, that's fine. Uh, those of you who are on that plan, can you remember all that, right? You remember when you, when you were in school, not reading your textbooks, right? Um, how memorable was it when you had to like pack in, cram in chapter after chapter a night? Could you regurgitate it? No. There were portions of it, sections of it. What I found, and this is why we we preach the way we do, small chunks, is I've literally been studying this passage for a week and a half, six verses, and have been completely content. I haven't gotten Nancy. I've never felt like, man, it's time to move on. Like this, pa- and this is a strange passage that seems somewhat down downtrodden. You know, like eating flesh with fire. Like that's not the best news I've heard all day, right? 
So if you can get yourself first out of that mentality and stop thinking that God's giving you a high five for the amount that you're reading and that he's called you to faith and obedience, then everything changes. Agree? If you stop thinking in your mind, God's looking down right now and he's seeing how much I'm reading and he's seeing me underline in multiple colored highlights, right? Surely he thinks I'm more awesome now, right? It's not happening. That's not the way God sees us. He sees us through, his lens, through the lens of his son, Jesus. So as worship begins to soften my heart, then there's always three questions of every single verse I have to ask. The first is context. Three C's, context. Now, I'm going to show you several resources here in a second, but the context of the book of James can be found all over very reliable resources, some of which I'll show you in a second. When we started the book of James, we knew and understood, because I described it to you and have been reiterating it all along, that James is the half-brother of Jesus, who at first didn't believe in his brother. His brother was Savior and King, right? Now, as he's gone along, okay, clearly something has happened in his heart. His heart has changed, and then he becomes a pastor and a church planter in Jerusalem, the same city that killed his brother. Now, you may be like, well, that's insignificant because, like, this is all just... No, no, no. It's largely significant. God has inspired his word and has written it through man, yes, but he's written through men who have stories and backgrounds and perspectives, and God is using that both culturally and personally to help shape our hearts. So every time I study James, I'm reminding myself of who James is. Okay, so half-brother of Jesus, he struggled at first. He's in a, in, a, in a city that has killed many Christians, and so persecution is a huge piece of it all. Right? Context is always the first thing I ask. Then I just begin to ask questions. So I gave you a piece of paper and a pen. What I would be doing in my own study and on my whiteboard in my office or a piece of paper is I would just start asking any possible question of verse 1. Verse 1 says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon, uh, 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 for the miseries that are coming upon you. Um, by my count, I counted uh, 17 questions from verse 1. Okay? 17. There may be 18. I don't know. But for me, there were 17 questions. Uh, the first thing that popped out, for instance, was come now. I was like, hold on a second. That sounds vaguely familiar. You guys remember James 4? Look at, look at James 4, verse 13. What does he say in James 4, uh, 13, if you have your Bible open? What does he say? Come now, okay? So the first thing that's intriguing is that he's repeating a verse, uh, a phrase, a line. Come now is this term that's like, listen, pay attention, open your ear, right? But the word in verse uh, 1 that really, really grabs me, and I feel like we need to understand, is the word rich. Uh, This is what has caused many of you to struggle already in verse 1. Because you're like, I ain't rich, so this verse doesn't apply to me. Close Bible, end, right? (laughs) Like, I got like a buck to my name, right? So the first thing that's always intriguing, like, what does the word rich mean? You can look it up in Webster's. Problem is, the Bible was originally written in three different languages, okay? The New Testament, mostly in Greek. Now, there's an amazing resource I want to show you. It's a resource we use. Thankfully, on our staff, we have a resident theologian and scholar, Jared, who can break it down even further. But for us laymen, right, who want a base knowledge of Greek, I took two years of it, don't remember much, resources are good. Okay. So blueletterbible.com 
is an amazing resource, blueletterbible.com, all right? Now, the first thing I do when I'm interested in a specific word, okay, the first thing I do is I change the translation to ESV. So you can see, Andrew, there changing the version to ESV. Now, let me explain this first. I know many of you have different kinds of Bibles. Here at Matthias, we use the ESV, okay? The reason why we use the ESV, we switched from the NIV a few years ago, is because the ESV is believed uh, by me and many others to be the most literal translation in terms of the original language. Okay. Now, there's varying philosophies out there and theories out there. For us, the ESV has found itself to be incredibly accurate in terms of the original Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic. All right? So we change the version. Now, if I'm interested in a word in James chapter 5, all I do here is I type in James 5. Okay, Really brilliant. You hit click. Now, now, look at this. This is kind of fun. Now, if Andrew clicks C next to James uh, chapter 5, verse 1, look at what just pops up. Every, every one of the Greek words there. Now, you may think that when you come here and I start spouting out Greek words, that this is all stuff that I have memorized, that I have the whole Bible memorized in Greek. I know how to use the Internet, okay? <laughs> we were talking about this a, a, a lot as a staff, and we said one of the, one of the biggest blessings of this evening, we hope, is that you continue to see, God has called me to preach and communicate his word, shepherd and pastor of the church. Praise God. But we all are his sons and daughters, you see what I'm saying, who are given the same spirit. And so, yes, I spend time every single week studying to preach and communicate. Not everyone has that gift, but we all have the same spirit in us who are followers of Christ to see and utilize resources to learn his word more. Are we together? So what it does is it lessens the focus of one man, and heightens the focus on God. Are we together? That's why the priestly model in our culture is, in my opinion, not biblical. Okay? So my uh, question was about the word rich. He clicks on rich right there. Okay? You can try to pronounce it. In fact, if you'd like to pronounce it just for the fun, you can hit the play button there, and that will actually pronounce the word. Can we do that? Do we still have audio playing? Go ahead and click that just for the fun of it here. Let's hear this. There we go. Strong G, 4145, Plusios. Okay. So when you hear me a quote a Greek word on Wednesday, you're like, man, he's speaking Greek. I just listened to the audio and phonetically spelled it on my piece of paper, okay? I'm like, chai, you know, so listen, it's for all of us, okay? Now, I, I know it's in small text, but what it says here is wealthy and abounding in material resources. Now, the reason why this is interesting, um, you may be thinking like, yeah, duh, like that's what rich means, like of course. Okay. Um, that verse could have went in many different directions. But now, because we've looked at the original word, now all of a sudden we're, we're brought in to the rich that he's talking about. Now, if this was happening at my desk, my mind begins to go. See what I'm saying? Anyone can just do what I just did. You look up the word rich, and now that begins to spur other questions, doesn't it? So let's look back at verse 1. Come now, you rich, wealthy, Bounding in material resources, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Um, okay, there's like some interesting tenses of the words here. One of my next questions is like, what does he mean by weep and howl? What are those words meaning? Now, uh, what I did in my personal study is I went word for word and kept studying these things and looking at these things and understanding these things. 
but something that's always at your access, an amazing, amazing resource that's always at your access is this website called esvbible.org. Pull up esvbible.org. Now, incredible, incredible, incredible. I want to show you something. Any, of, any one of you who have ever bought the ESV Study Bible, you know that you have your scripture, and to the side there are little helps. Now, Andrew's going to log in to my account. Anytime you buy an ESV Study Bible, you get an account for, the, for this online resource. He's not going to tell you my password. For this online resource, which also has a phone application. Okay, So anywhere I go, I can pull up this interface on my phone. Crazy. Now, the weep and howl teaching is pretty weird. So I'm like, what, what really is he saying here? Now, any commentary is something that helps describe God's word. What you see on the right-hand side here is commentary. Okay, a scholar, a theologian has taken this text and has broken it down. So what he says here about the weep and howl portion is prophetic language for those under indictment by God when the day of the Lord arrives, referring to the final judgment now let's make something clear is commentary scripture no the commentary is not the bible okay but it's a help it's an aid to open your heart to other things that the lord may be saying through the text this is i I think this resource online right now is like matt do you know is it like 23 24 bucks something like that pardon okay thank you all right um it's it's low 20s and you can have full access to this, to this resource. Now, the other thing you can do is, for a different perspective, I know many of you guys like John MacArthur. How many, how many of you guys like John MacArthur? Right? Where's Brzezinski? You in here, Brzezinski? Uh, Jeff, one of our pastors, um, uh, he, like, he wishes I was John MacArthur many days. He's like, you know, this whole thing would be a whole lot better if you were a lot more like John MacArthur. I'm like, all right, sorry, bro. Gray hair, it's coming one day. Well, look at this. You see the MSB notes? You can add more commentaries on this interface. So go to, go to MSB notes there. Uh, right there on the, the far right tab. There you go. So now there's, there's a, okay, something crazy has just happened. We're going back. Anyway, John MacArthur's whole commentary is up there as well. So uh, all of you are like, okay, that's nice. We just played with the internet at a church service. W- w- what are you trying to tell me? I'm trying to tell you that we've just spent 10 minutes and we've barely even touched verse 1. And uh, how many of you guys would read verse 1? Weep, howl, this is strange. <laughs> like, bring me Philippians 4.13. So my question is, is James 5.1 God's word? Is it? Yes. Is it written for a specific reason? Yes. Is it in the Bible for a, a specific cause? Yes. Then as I begin to ask questions of the text and answer those questions, the thing I'm always pondering in my heart is what does this tell me about God's character? Before I ever ask, what does this mean for me? Which is what I know many of you go to initially. What does this mean for me? We pow, miseries are coming. I don't know, this seems strange. So what does this tell me about God's character? Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. We just said that this whole context of this verse is the final judgment. So as I sit back and ask, what does this verse tell me about God? It says he's coming back. And apparently in this text... It's saying, listen, there's a group of people who better figure out how to get their hearts ready. Repent and turn back to them. Okay. And in my study, worship, music, worship music, music is still playing. I'm jotting down notes. And again, in my own study, my study of verse 1 lasted way, 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 way longer than this. 
and I haven't even got started. You could spend hours in verse 1 and the Lord still showing you more and more. Because then what happens next is you begin to pray the, the scripture. You start thinking about the final judgment. You're like, God, I know that your Bible says that the day and the hour is unknown. So I pray that you would get my heart ready. Get me ready, God. And now all of a sudden you're not just studying. You're studying and you're praying and you're worshiping, and you're getting enveloped in His grace. How many of you guys feel like when you open your Bible, it's just like you're going to school or something, right? And you're just going to like to get what it has for you instead of every time worshiping. I know one of the awesome things about coming here together is worshiping together. Like these guys are awesome at what they do. They lead us to the throne of God very humbly. We love it, right? As for me in my house, that happens up in my house, in my, my office, in my room every day, my car, it's a blessing to be with the church, with the community. Amen, right? Like, that's great to be together. But my God doesn't change whether I'm here with you or up in my office or in my car or with my kids. Same God, same Bible. And so the more that I get enveloped in His grace, it doesn't matter. Like, His Word just begins to reveal Himself. We are lazy is what I'm saying. Okay. If riches are rotting, then what does this mean? So again, he types in, change the version to the ESV. Then he goes back to James chapter 5, blueletterbible.com. Now all of a sudden we're in verse 2. He clicks the C, opens up all the Greek words for me, and now he goes to rotted. Pretty soon we see to make corrupt or to destroy. That carries a little bit more weight, doesn't it? So you may be saying like, well, why didn't the Bible then just interpret it to destroy or to make corrupt, right? Well, the interpreters are choosing words that are the summation of these things. And when you go underneath it, all of a sudden you uncover even more depth. And so he says, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Just to create a mental image, a lot of times, like at this moment, I'm like, so what does moth-eaten mean? So Google Images is great for this, right? Here we go. Cue the Google Images, right? So all of a sudden you can just type in uh, moth-eaten here. If we can go to Google Images, yeah. Moth-eaten garments. Let's type that in, okay? Just so we can get an image here of what's going on. By the way, you're always, when you're using Google Images, you always want to make sure your safe search is on strict, okay? Um, some of you guys are laughing. You know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? So here we see some, some, harmet, uh, some garments with holes in them, okay? Uh, it's always funny when you do a search like this because you, you can... You, know, you see all these garments, and then all of a sudden there's a random baby in there. You know what I'm saying? Okay. Um, so you kind of have to like, kind of have to like pick and choose uh, which image you're using, right? So here's what, he, here's what he's saying in verse 2. Like, as you let this, your, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. There's, there's holes, there's gaps. Take the baby down, please, right? Like, everything you think that you have in richness is, is eaten. It's... It's going away, right? And what you start to do is you're starting to get in the heart of James. Again, you're praying, God, please show me what you want me to see in your word. And you're asking questions and you're getting enveloped in the mystery. And it's way less just to study. And all of a sudden, you find yourself worshiping. And you get to this place like I did in verse 2. And I'm like, God, I want to use all, everything I have for you. It's yours. That's what I got to in verse 2. As I saw the character of God and then even began to get to the conclusion, what I am to take away from it, I was like, God, in comparison to the rest of the world, I am rich. I know in comparison to the other Americans, I 
I may not be. I drive a 2002 Saab that I bought for 2700 off Craigslist, right? It's an amazing car, by the way. Um, has a turbo engine. Um, does, I'll prove it later. But compared to the rest of the world, I'm rich. You are rich. And you can start to see the heart of what James is getting at. All of this has holes. And listen, then all of a sudden in my study, I got to verse 3. Listen, listen, listen. It has to stop being rote because the word is alive. The word in and of itself is not rote. Even when you come to a passage that seems strange, that all of a sudden I got to verse 3. Look at this. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. So some of you are thinking, like, how, did, how is that encouraging to you, right? My first question was, does gold and silver corrode? Right? Cue the Google search. <laughs> Super simple, okay? Look at this. Does gold and silver corrode? I, I, can, I can look up here, right, right here, the third thing down, Okay? This tends to use more noble metals which resist corrosion better and you can go on and on. Again, there's unreliable resources on Google, trust me. But when all of them say the same thing, the gold and silver do not corrode or if they do, it takes a tremendous amount of time. Do you see all of a sudden what James is saying? You can take that down, right? So all of a sudden in this text I'm brought to, hold on a second, your gold and silver have corroded. I could easily pass over that like many of you do in your study. Use Passover phrases, yeah, whatever. But if you're drawn into the mystery of the text, your gold and silver have corroded. But gold and silver doesn't corrode. And if it does, it takes a tremendously long time. So what is he saying? Even the things that you think don't corrode, even the things that this earth says won't corrode, they will go away. And the worship music's playing, and I begin to pray. Listen, this is what happened in my office when I was looking at this passage. I begin to pray. I shared this with the staff on Monday. I begin to pray. And the thought that keeps going through my mind is all of this, everything on this earth, it will all corrode, but the gospel doesn't. That was where my, that was where my mind went. And so all of a sudden, I'm like sitting there, and I did the Google search. It doesn't corrode. And we were talking about it as a staff. And I was like, okay, so, so everything that I think has value, everything that I put stock in that provides me security, that I think will one day give me something back, all of it corrodes, even the most precious of metals, that everything in our earth and understanding and science would say it would never do that. The Bible says it does. Why? Because the gospel doesn't. The heart filled with the Spirit of God does not corrode. And the image I had in my mind was this like piece of gold that was slowly rusting. And then all of a sudden, when changed, the heart changed with the gospel, that rust all of a sudden is, be, is being made new like the Bible says. We're a new creation. All from this simple little verse. And you're like, come on. Mark, you're a pastor. Like, that's how you made all those connections. When was the last time you just prayed for God to show up in your personal time? It's so checklist for us. And I found myself, and I found myself when I studied this, just in tears. And you're like, well, that doesn't make it that doesn't make it awesome. I agree. A tear doesn't mean it's... But I found myself so gripped by the grace of God that I then just began to pray. 
God, thank you that the gospel doesn't corrode. Thank you that it heals and restores. Thank you. And then all of a sudden, I find myself repenting. God, here's the things that still look like my old way of life. Will you cause and turn my heart to repentance? Hold on a second, Mark. I thought we were studying. Yeah, and now all of a sudden, we're praying. And in the next moment, the song comes on, and I'm worshiping through song. No more compartmentalized. And I look at my watch, and it's been an hour. Oh, man, it's time to go. Instead of what do you do? All right. God's probably not watching me look at my watch. It's been seven seconds. Um... I did the blue letter Bible thing. God must appreciate that, right? You guys see what I'm saying? And listen, we're just scratching the surface tonight, but every time I preach, this is how I prepare. And you're like, so you're preaching us stuff from Google? <laughs> like that's, no, okay? Well, sometimes, right? <laughs> but when we study and prepare as a staff and as a team and as elders... We're all sharing. We're all speaking into what God's shown us. And then God has gifted me and called me to to communicate it with us all. But it doesn't mean that my gift is escalated. It doesn't mean that I sit on some throne. It just makes me the communicator of God's word. But I have the same spirit that you all have. I sit in the same closet, different closet, but the same kind of structure that you all do with God's word open. And it can speak to all of us. Are we together? And so for those of you that came in, seriously, and you've never believed in God ever, and this is your biggest source of unbelief, you're like, seriously, come on. Like, how could all of this be true? That's finally what I told my daughter last night. I was like, honey, uh, my biggest defense of the Bible's truth is that these guys who appear to not believe and run away, the disciples, they uh, 10 of 11 died because of their faith. That's why daddy believes the Bible's true. Logic. Logic. I wouldn't die for something that I didn't believe in. Neither would they. Neither would you. Logic. Okay. So now all of a sudden this thing starts uh, to breathe. So I want to share one more thing on verse 3 as I begin to process this. Look, look at it again. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you. And will eat your flesh like fire, which must go back to what we saw in verse 1. This image of destruction final judgment. And here's what he says. You have laid up treasure in the last days. You've thought that all of this will provide you something. When I was reading all this, here's the thought on my my heart, and I want to share this with you guys, just have a moment with you. He's writing to some people who are being guided by one of the strongest words in our language. Maybe. Some, Some of you have pop culture song, Call Me Maybe, now going through your mind, right? And if you didn't, now you do. I'm sorry, right? (laughs) Maybe is an extremely powerful word because maybe leads to hope. You know what I'm saying? Maybe this relationship will work out. Maybe all of this will turn around tomorrow. James is, listen, James is writing to a group of people who are saying maybe these things will provide me something. And they've begun to store up treasures. And their hope has all of a sudden been found in things that they can hold in their hands. Are we together? And all of this, I'm just, I'm processing and to questions and study and all this is coming out. And then I begin to think this, what you hope for shows what your God is. These people had clearly 
been driven so much by the maybe and the hope of wealth that that had become their God. Wealth was their God. That's what they worshipped. And that's what he's saying. They, they're storing up treasures. And you know what? It's going to eat their flesh. It's going to bring destruction. Why? Because that's their God and not the God of the Bible. That's, that's not going to get them anywhere. And so again, in my study, I found myself back to prayer, repenting of my idolatry. God, I know in your Bible over and over and over you say that I should put no other God before you. So please, stir my heart to repentance that everything else could be killed off and that you truly could be my God. Listen, what you find yourself doing all of a sudden is for those of you that have been so complacent in the word, not caught up in the mystery of it, you find yourself again believing that the Bible's true. And that's what some of you are struggling with tonight. Let me ask this, let me ask this. Last thing and then we'll move on to verse four. If you really believed it it was true, that it was life-giving, that it was living and active, if you really believe that, that these were the words of God, wouldn't you, wouldn't you go to it? What does our lack and laziness in the word really reveal about what we believe? Is it showing the gaps of our faith? All right. Then he says this powerful thing in verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. This is an amazing verse. My first thought, and the more that you are in the word, the more like other pieces in scripture start to come to mind when you read it. I hear Lord of hosts and I'm like, that's just an interesting way of phrasing it. I wonder where else that is in the Bible. ESVBible.org. Check this out. Here we go. Okay, I want to show you guys. This is, this is exactly what I do in my study. Okay? Okay, go back to ESV Bible. That would be wonderful. And I want to show you guys this, walk you guys through this. So you can go up to search for me on the far right-hand side. Okay? Uh, search there, yep. And then just do ESV Bible. Okay? Now, in the, in the top line there, Andrew, just put a quotation mark around Lord of hosts. I'm interested, where else is this phrase in the Bible? Lord of hosts, okay? He clicks enter, okay? This is the amazing thing about the internet, Lord, do you spelled it wrong or something, right? Lord of hosts, okay? Yeah, Lord of hosts isn't going to cut it. Lord of hosts, okay? So there we go. Go back to Hooked on Phonics. <clears throat> Lord of hosts, okay? There we go. Boom shaka, okay. <laughs> now, look at this, look at this. Now scroll down for me, scroll down for me. Okay, stop. What do you notice? What do you notice? What do you notice? Come on. Two mentions in the what? In the New Testament. Romans and James. I'm always, when I do a search like this, intrigued where it shows up the most. Where does it show up the most? Jeremiah, which is a what in in the Bible? It's a very prophetic book, okay? So this whole passage to me has felt like the Old Testament. Now I know why. Because he was leading to say this portion of the character of God that's pointing to the Lord of hosts. And this phrase is only found in James and one mention in Romans. Just out of curiosity, where is it in Romans? So all of a sudden I click on Romans down there at the bottom. 
This is pretty amazing. Boom, there's the verse. Oh, look, Romans is quoting the Old Testament. So this is a very, very Old Testament direction piece of, of God's character. Okay. So now all of a sudden when we look back at verse 4, this entirely changes the way we read and hear this verse. Take that down for me. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Is anyone else stirred by the end of that verse at all? Because the moment I read it, I looked up Lord of hosts, and then I see in the Bible, the ears of the harvesters, those who have been wronged, are crying up to the Lord of hosts. And what does the Bible say? Look at that. And the cries of the harvesters have reached. He's hearing them. And then I instantly thought of Psalm 34. The more you grow in your knowledge of the Bible, the more verses just start to pop in your mind. You want to test that theory? Start reading the Bible. You guys know what Psalm 34 says? He's near to the brokenhearted. And now, seriously, now in my office, I'm like hands raised. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I'm, my heart's palpitating. You're like, your heart's always palpitating. Okay, maybe, right? Like, <laughs> maybe, maybe. But I was just drawn in. And all of a sudden, I'm like, he's, he's near to the brokenhearted. And in this passage, these people have been frauded. They haven't, their wages haven't been paid by these same rich people that he's condemning. And, but he's saying, who's close to him? You know what? It doesn't matter who will wrong you or who will go against you. Guess what? The Lord of hosts hears the cries of the harvesters. Right. And all of a sudden, in verse 4, the cries of those harvesters have reached the ears. Um, um, I'm brought back to the mercy of God. The wages of those laborers you kept back. But God was still loving. And then verse 5 is one of those verses um, that takes a knife and just slices you right open. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. So I'm looking up the words luxury and self-indulgence. <laughs> trying to find a, even a loophole. Like maybe that's not me, I don't know. Yeah. Have you? Have you lived in self-indulgence, luxury? Have you ever been around people that travel here from other countries? It's always a little bit interesting how the conversation goes. And we just chalk it up to we're Americans, man. Like that's Chick-fil-A day, you know? Like that's just how we roll, right? Here's what Philippians says about our self-indulgence. But somehow in the text, we're to do nothing from rivalry or self-conceit, but in humility, we're to count others more significant than ourselves. So we're to not live in self-indulgence, but actually we're to count others more than ourselves. Uh, Jesus said the greatest commandment was to love God and love people. You glorify Him, you worship Him, you have faith in Him, and in lieu of that you obey Him, and then you love other people. And what James is um, condemning in these folks is that they've lived in luxury, and that's become their God. And because that's their God, then they do what that God says. And what that God says is more, more, more. And as I'm studying and writing questions and doing everything that all of you can do, 
I was again brought back to repentance. You're like, man, Mark, you've repented like four times in this passage. Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it beautiful? You're like, well, I'm just used to, you know, like repenting for the same things. And we've now repented of four different things from what's seemingly a, a random weird passage. Now all of a sudden I'm like, God, is there anything in my life that I'm living out of luxury or self-indulging? God, is there anything out of this that you need just to kill out of me? Lord, please reveal that to me. Shake me. And now, now listen, guys. Do you understand now how the study of six verses can last way longer than a minute? Come on. And now, like, all of a sudden as we're unpacking all this, do you see how we could, we could hang in verse 5? I could literally preach a sermon about every single verse of the Bible. We may try sometime, Right? But we could do it. There's so much, richness, uh, so much richness there. Then he ends by saying in verse 5, You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have lived in so much self-indulgence that the image, like, what comes to your mind here when you read this? You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. What comes to mind in a, in a moment of interaction? What comes to mind, huh? Okay. Definitely, definitely some image of sacrifice. Like you've, yeah, what else? Come on now, come on now. Does anyone picture a cow grazing here? I do. You fattened yourself, right? Like you've just been grazing this in this grass field? Like a cow chewing on cud? That may be a horse, I don't know, whatever, right? But you're just out there and you're just getting fat and fat and fat off your self-indulgence and luxury. And then he ends by saying this in verse 6. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you, which... Even for me in, in verse 6, especially, like, I had to go back to the commentaries and be like, What's, what is he saying here? Because initially I, I was like, well, maybe he's talking about Jesus. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, which would certainly be true. They condemned and murdered him, right? And he was righteous. All that's true. The problem is this isn't talking about Jesus. It's talking about the hearts of the rich and what they've done. He does not resist you. Again, could be a quote for Christ, but it's not. In the, there's so much richness in the study of this. So, listen. Three things every time I study. Three things every single day, every single time. What's the context? What does this tell me about the character of God? And then what's the conclusion? How do I go and leave in light of this? And I'm in this steady flow of worship and prayer and reading. That's why when I teach my children the Bible, it's not just, okay, kids, and now we shall open the Bible, right? And everyone fold your hands, sing Kumbaya, three-part harmony, here we go, right? No, I'm teaching them how to get wrapped up in the character of God. And then all of a sudden you find yourself reading God's word and you have to just for a moment leave it for a second so that you can just worship. And there have been times, yes, maybe even singing, uh, singing silly kids songs that still speak of God's truth where we just read almost like a song comes to mind. I'm like, kids, let's, let's sing this right now. Father Abraham, here we go, you know? <laughs> Listen, I'm calling tonight all of us, including myself, I'm calling our laziness to the table. our lackluster approach to God's word. I believe that our laziness has become a God. Just like for these rich folks, 
wealth and luxury, pleasure even. Our laziness has become a God. It's driving us. It's tricking us. It's giving us a false sense of security. And so the question becomes, what do we do? So I want you guys to stand with me, and I'm going to ask Brandon to come up here with me. Um, so I get to the end of this, and I'm like, all right, that was fun. Hopefully people will use some resources that are at their fingertips and But I sit back from this and I'm like, all right, so, so what? So what now? What, what do they do? Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. They're not going to do a thing. Your gold and silver have corroded, but the gospel doesn't. Everything on this earth will one day rust away in the new heaven, the new earth become our reality and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Judgment is real. And if I make anything else my God and not the God of the universe, the God of the Bible, then all that will corrode. He will never and my heart in Him will never because His Son conquered, conquered death and walked out of the tomb. You've laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. He's merciful. He's near to the brokenhearted, you see. And as I studied this and had worked through all this and just reading through again, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. God, break my heart. Teach me that it's all yours. There is nothing that I have that is not yours. You in your grace have given me every dollar bill, every car, every kid, every home. It's all yours. God, help me release the grip of it. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. God, break my heart from how much I'm becoming fat on my own self-pursuits. Verse 6, you have condemned, you have murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. When you make anything else your God, it's crazy to see what you'll do. So what do you do from this? You know what I sit back and say? God, you're merciful. God, your gospel doesn't corrode. God, help me release all of the grip of my things, my luxury, my self-indulgence. God, do that work. And this is just me in my closet, in my office, studying God's word. Nothing else happening. The worship music playing. I'm pleading to the Lord. I'm on my face. And you know what happens then? Listen. I walk out to the world. And you know what's written on my heart? God's word. And you know what I'm living off of? Not last week's sermon. I'm living off of today's bread. You see? And all of a sudden I interact with people. And guess what? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Why? Because He's fed me today. His word has fed every morsel of my body. It's, it's gotten in me. It's enriched me. And now all of a sudden the struggles and the trials and the temptations, they become a little bit more minuscule and His glory much more grandeur. That's what happens when you're in God's word. So what does it look like if all of us are just like, kill our laziness right now because your word is rich. Your word is rich. 
And you are rich in mercy. And so our response then is, what a God. And every day, that's our response. What a God. What an amazing God. And then we worship and we follow him and we obey. So I ask you tonight, what's your response? Is it the greatness and the holiness of God that will redraw you again to his scripture and awaken your heart for a passion for him? Or will it be like, yeah, that's nice. God's good, whatever. God, please, come here now and change every bit of us, loosing the grip of our life and resting in your mercy. You respond tonight how God stirred you through his word.